Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Getting to Better Together, sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership of the University of the Sunshine Coast and supported by Noosa FM Radio at 101.3. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians, the Gabi Gabi people of this country, and their, acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging, to whom I give my respects. The central theme of our podcast of Getting to Better Together is that it's really only through collaboration that we will be able to deal successfully with the pressing issues of the day, such as pandemics, climate change, economic recessions, even war. In this episode, we open up a new perspective on the topic with my guest, Anthony Bedford. Anthony is Associate Professor of Racing and Sports Performance Analysis here at USC. He's an internationally recognised expert in sport analytics with career highlights including the keynote address at the International Association of Computer Science in Sport at the uh, pre-Olympic conference in in London. He's been an elite analyst and consultant with many sports, with a predominance in both elite national and international netball. He's also been involved in two Olympic and Commonwealth Games campaigns. Before I ask you to take us into this uh, fascinating world of the synthesis between math and sport, Anthony, let me me start with some basic issues around sport within a context of getting to better together. First of all, let me just say welcome. Thank you, Richard. Nice to meet you. Sport, in my experience over the years, is a a wonderful mechanism for for developing collaboration. I played a lot of rugby in school when I was uh, in post-war England, and I played cricket and tennis and so on. And we played in the same team uh, as the years progressed. And so we could judge our performance on our record against the same school over a period of six years. And that was it. There were no finals, no grand finals, and so on. Uh, and then I found the same thing when I came, uh, went to university. And I then also played for a small provincial town. Coming to Australia, I confronted a co- totally different sports culture. Competition. My own children and my grandchildren played sport a competitive arena from a very early age. Like six and seven-year-old, they were playing in leagues. Yet the spirit of collaboration lived on. And here I am at the ripe age of 82, playing competitive as well as social croquet. I'm experiencing the same creative tension between competitiveness and collaboration. These ideas ring true to you? Were you a sporty kid or a maths weed or both? Yeah, kind of both, Richard. Um, I loved playing football or soccer. Uh, I grew up in Melbourne. I played a lot in uh, high school and went through post-high school and, and played a lot of team-based sport. I also was pretty handy at sprinter and you know, like everyone in this world was, you know, nudging national selection, but of course I wasn't. <laughs> um, but I, I did find that collaborative environment of sport the thing that kind of bonded us together and I kept thinking about mathematics while I was playing which is kind of weird and uh, if, you, if you talk to any of my um, former athletes or current athletes I work with they keep hearing me talk about triangles and squares and and attacking lines and it's kind of fascinating to think that uh, maths has such an integral part and I just love um, talking about these things and saying especially in netball for instance that you don't want straight lines you want triangles and triangles to, to pass the ball around um, but that team environment, look, uh, growing up as a kid, it was um, it, it's a great way to, to collaborate because, you know, mathematicians, 
uh, we, we do think a little bit differently, I think, in our own, our own unique way. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great place to come together with people that are very movement and uh, more kinesthetic, uh, whereas I'm very much a read-write person. So it was, it was nice to have that combination between those that are kinesthetic movers and, and those analytical type movers. Right, right. Would you see yourself uh, as more of an abstract mathematician with an interest in analytics or the other way around? I think the former, yeah, definitely the definitely the former way. Although I've migrating, the, the more of my career goes, I'm much more interested in the analytical thinking than the abstract. Um, but I, I can see a basis for it, like the, the shapes, et cetera, et cetera. They're very pure mathematics. Um, entertain me a lot less, and the, and the more and more I, I go down my career pathway, I see the value in um, that subjective angle. And then, of course, I try to quantify that uh, to, to create success. But um, I've learned a lot that um, as young analytics uh, uh, students of the game and analytically can become very blind by numbers and it, you have to put it in context. And I've kind of, uh, I hope I've been successful in my career in translating very abstract and pure things to make teams successful by contextualizing it. And it's a real, a real power of, uh, or a real skill, I guess, of the, um, the expert analyst. How do you convey that to the people that, first of all, that you're, you're analysing and, and, and therefore collaborating with, and then with students? Yeah, um, I talk about high-performance teams. So I've, I was with the Sunshine Coast Lightning for five years and the Melbourne Vixens before that. Um, many, many different teams. Uh, I've just come back from a tour with the Silver Ferns, the Netball New Zealand team. And the common themes are one needs to break down complex concepts uh, concepts into, say, metaphors. One I was using at Lightning was called GIFs. We need to give GIFs, and GIFs stands for gains, feeds, and turnovers. And they're just very basic metrics, but they they translated really well to success because once you could the players could see uh, how these numbers or these actions on court related to success, there was a belief that that, that would work. So it's kind of the... The structure I use with my students as well is that um, first thing as an analyst, make sure you get the score right. It's pretty important. Um, <laughs> and then make sure your models are correct, but also have that uh, faith in, in what you're doing and admit when you're wrong. And that's been a really, a, a really big lesson is that maths or specifically statistics is about error. We learn from error. And that um, as an analyst, as a person yourself, you need to learn from your mistakes and, and, and express that in that team environment. And players make mistakes all the time. You don't want to become so tight that they don't pass the ball because they're afraid of making a mistake. It's not the beauty of sport. We go there to watch errors, really, because um, we all knew what was going to happen. That's interesting. Yeah, well, no, we'd turn up. If we all knew the result, why would we go? So it, it's kind of that errors that, um, that lead us to success. The... Um the stats that I recall from uh, a thousand years ago as an undergraduate and then a postgraduate really had to do with, with probabilities. There's a probability of this happening, a probability of that happening. And then, as you say, you can either be averse to taking that risk uh, or doing it. What's behind doing it? There's some stuff that we did a long time ago in ice hockey when I was back in Melbourne and looked at the response of coaches to pull the goalkeeper. I'm diversifying my sport history here. But uh, in uh, ice hockey, you can take your goalkeeper off and put on an extra player to, of course, rush at the attack on the goals. And what the research found is that most coaches waited too late to take the risk. Oh, really? Right. 
Yes, because they were risk averse. But if they took that risk earlier, they had a much better opportunity to get that late goal to go into overtime and perhaps win that game. So I think it's an innate fear uh, of, of coaches of making mistakes. And to flip that kind of on its head, uh, with my work with the Australian Olympic badminton team, I was working with them on when to take a risky serve in a game because um, that element of risk, you can only do it once or twice. It's called a lift serve. And it's kind of like a lob in tennis, kind of like what Nick Kyrgios does sometimes, that under-the-leg under serve, to surprise your opponent. But often it was taken when the game was well and truly over. So we, yeah, we needed to take it earlier. So there seems to be this, this rather risk-averse approach that we have to play safe to win. But in fact, um, some proponents of knowing when to do that risk. Oh, that's kind of the skill, isn't it? Like knowing when to execu execute that, um, that risky serve and see how you go. I hope that answers your question, but I, have, I do find risk very interesting and I spend a lot of my, my work on that. Uh, and certainly in the Suncorp Super Netball in Australia, there is that risky shot, the two-point shot that happens in the last five minutes. And I've worked a lot with Lightning over the years about when to take it and not to take it. And it, it became kind of common knowledge that Lightning was not taking the risky shot because the reward was far less than the risk. Uh, and there was, but we came to an agreement to a certain moments and that when we should take that. And that was part of our success, certainly in that in 2020. I, I can recall that um, all, all the way through school and then later on, uh, as I played, I always regarded myself as, as a B grade player in that, A, I was bone lazy and I really wasn't prepared to put in all the effort to train to become better, but also innately, I knew I wasn't that good. And, uh, you know, a whole succession of coaches would say to me, well, you could be. You know, I was very fast uh, and I was slim back in those days um, and I had a good sports mind. I mean, I knew what the game was about. I knew what my role was. But I think now you're explaining it, I think that was what I was about. I think I was too risk averse. Uh, so if, if I played out uh, in, in the centres in rugby union, and I think that I got rid of the ball too quickly when I think about it. Uh, you know, I really didn't want to be hit by a 10-ton truck. <laughs> um, mathematically, I, you know, I, I guess when I hear you speak now, that's what I was. I was risk averse. And that I didn't think I was ever going to get over that. You must meet people who are risk averse, who need to get over it because they're an elite sports person. How do you help them get over? Yeah, it's hard, and I, I often explain it through numbers. Um, so I'll use it. Yeah, what a what a what a shock! Uh, if I use the netball context, um, the mid quarters. Uh, tend to make errors and goal attacks in netball specifically they're allowed to make errors because they are the playmakers and the way to handle that is that um, look we need you to take that risk because that's what wins us games whereas you switch it to defenders and uh, defenders they can obstruct by being too close to their opponents and when you're obstructing just by standing too close you're out of the play so you're effectively out of the game so if you make an error as an attacker and it goes out you've got a chance to get it back but if you make an error as a defender you're out of the game. So it's around sharpening those different skills for different positions. And also an allowance for the fact, and this is something that I learned from the great Dame Nolly in Tarua, um, was that um, you need the freedom to express yourself. And if that freedom is errors, we know what those boundaries are. So if we know what they are, we can handle it. 
and, and say, well, we know that this, if she comes on at this point in time, we're going to get this many areas, but we're going to get this kind of result. So it, it is very much um, a personality thing too. I must say there are certain players that you, and I had the same experience with uh, Olympic teams, that there are certain athletes that don't like to have that discussion either. And it, it just tightens them up. Um, but they will be happy to do it afterwards, whereas other players want to know then and there that blunt message. So going from a, a mathematical base, you need to have very, very good communication skills and that rapport with, rapport with people to have those, those conversations to say, look, you, and that's what the coach does, is translate my knowledge, uh, my live knowledge that goes down to him or her on the bench to that player to say, you've got to come off because this is happening. Um, and that's just performed over connections over time and, and those uh, rapport you have with, with players. It's, it's quite beautiful when it, when it works. And I, I actually find you learn, as I said before, you learn a lot when people are under pressure, including myself, um, that it's great when you can have a frank conversation because as I say to many students, the consequences are there at the end of the game. I don't have to wait a year for something to happen. I, I will know after 60 minutes, whether or not we are successful or not. So you have to make that decision straight away. Going back to my, my uh, distinction between B grade and A grade, I mean, I have played some A grade sport because a coach asked me to, and I, every time I've said, look, I'm a B grade player. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, I, I'm not going to live up to your expectations. And it struck me that this is extraordinary paradox in sport, which then translates to society. So that to get to A grade, you have to show that you are competitive as an individual. You have to be able to show that you've got tremendous skills. And then when you get to A grade, all of a sudden now you've got a, a very specific role to play. And yes, there's still room, as you've just suggested, for innovation and, and doing something creative. But more or less, you're now a member of a team and you play as a member of the team that is almost scripted. Whereas to get there, it's the absolute opposite. And maybe that's true in life as well. Maybe we really can't collaborate about things until we've shown our own competitive edge. I hadn't thought about that before. Maybe that's so. Yeah, it's a nice thought because um, sport is ultimately about people and that freedom to express oneself. And you are typically recruited to that A grade maybe because they need to fill a hole and you have a skill set, but also because of, of who you are and what you, what you exhibit. I mean, you wouldn't be picked for a, a back position if you're a forward. Um, and I'm sure you're filling in, but you certainly still have that skill set. And really, it comes down to, I think, it's yeah, the passion for it and that, and that difference you exhibit as a player or what is those skill sets. But the other thing, I guess, turning about an athlete, talking about an athlete's progression through these things is that from my perspective, there are certain base expectations that are met by the time you get to A grade level that distinguish you from B grade. And, and, and C grade stuff. And some of those things are what you could call those non-tangibles. That passion, that, that desire to win. They can get you a long way in support. Um, but of course, you have to have that base skill set. It, it, an interesting thought, Richard. Let me switch a little bit to the uh, to math sport, about which I had never heard. <laughs> um, you sent me some stuff and I checked more, more on, the, on the internet. Uh, and I found the topics absolutely extraordinary. So... Here's just a few brief examples from a um, ANZIAM, and you might explain that in a moment, uh, and a math sport conference. And the, the proceedings include things like 
a uh, applying least squares to team sports and Olympic winning performances, which is clearly very mathematical uh, on the one hand, and then something really obtruse, like a mathematical model of giant swings on the horizontal bar. I mean, that sort of takes me into a world I can't even conceive. There's someone watching someone swing on a horizontal bar and try to figure out what's happening mathematically. Tell us a bit more about MathSport. Yeah, so MathSport has been running, oh, quite a long time now, three decades nearly. Um, We've got our next conference coming up this year. And it is a collection of mathematicians, both internationally and in Australia and New Zealand. And we focus on solving uh, problems in sport from a mathematical perspective. And some of those talks you've, uh, things you've talked about, we've talked about things like Bob Beeman's um, long jump um, and the mathematics of that. There's a mathematic of the optimal place to put your surfboard on when you're riding a wave to get the maximum distance. Uh, uh, Emeritus Professor Neville Demester talks about that. He's at Bond Uni. Um, and there's other more, I guess, more detailed ones like your least squares estimate and things such as, say, AFL. Uh, the, there was a talk done that talked about, you know, is are the Ruckman any use in AFL and it turns out it's just pure chance um, that when they knock the ball out it has virtually no effect on the outcome of the game which can make can make people quite irate because they spend their life training to be a ruckman but of course the absence of that player may have a consequence but ultimately it's just chance um, to to problems in, in gambling and problems in racing so that it is a collection that meets biannually uh, we do discuss these ideas and it's a, a great basis I find to um, talk about the pinnacle of, of my profession, uh, both nationally and internationally. But on top of that, I, I love bringing students along and um, that's a great pathway for emerging students uh, to, to see the connections between yeah, their, their skill set in maths, which might seem very, very distant from sport. And of course, I often think sports are a nice little micro uh, representation of society in many ways. Yeah, exactly, yes. Um, so it's, it's a nice... Uh, it's a nice conference and we have delegates come around from the, the world uh, to talk about these ideas. Um, and there's a lot of co- collaboration that happens from you know, your, your scientists at, say, the Australian Institute of Sports and your, and your people like me that work with in, in high-performance teams to people that um, just have a hobby for chess or like to surf. So it, it's a, a nice open environment where people can talk about these um, their mathematical solutions to world's problems in sport. <laughs> I obviously need to consort with you in terms of the um, of, of my playing on croquet. I mean, croquet is a, I don't know if you know much about it, but it's it's a, a very strategic game. Um, you're you're playing with four balls, either as four different players or two players with two balls each, and you have to think about the the future and where your ball's going to be or where you want their ball not to be. Uh, and I find that really absolutely fascinating. Plus the skill of them being able to do that. I mean, I played golf for a long time socially and as well a bit competitively and i find that the croquet is is just so much more clever and i'm wondering if you know if i if i spoke to you long enough you could help me mathematically with because a lot to do with angles yes yes all oh, right so there you got you so you've got two types of maths you've got angles and you've got the, the strategy yeah, the geometry and, and likelihood and, and algebra <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I love it. You're talking dirty, Richard. I love it. And I wasn't particularly good at either of those either. <laughs> it's, it's funny. You'll, you'll um, and I noticed certainly with working with elite athletes, many of them are actually elite mathematicians without having any knowledge of maths because they just rehearse it so well. That's interesting. 
Yeah. yeah. They, they know that their likelihood here is less just through instinct and repetitive practice rather than through any sort of, you know, sort of uh, long-term empirical knowledge. Is maths now so innate in you that you don't even recognise that you're being mathematic? Uh, in other words, when you look at things, do you still quantify it? Do you still analyse it as a mathematician? Uh, you try not to, to be honest. It, life's, life's quite joyous, and you can see the joy of maths in things, but um, I like to see it the other way around, um, that there is great joy in life with a bit of maths involved. Right, <laughs> that's great. I mean, a great friend of mine is a psychologist, and he hates going to cocktail parties and saying he's a psychologist. Oh, goodness, yeah. <laughs> People say, are you watching me? <laughs> Let's reverse the situation. How useful is sport in teaching maths? Oh, it's tremendous. Uh, and I have to say it's been one of the pinnacles of success in my career. Um, so I used to go out to, we had a real problem in engagement in mathematics programs. Uh, numbers were dwindling about 20 odd years ago. So I said, let's go out to um, high schools and I'll show them the stuff we do in sport. And I have graduated four PhDs in my career that I met in high school because they uh, got excited about it. And numerous students have gone through university because they wanted to do eventually what they saw math could do and no one made that connection. So I, I'm really proud of that. And on top of that, the emphasis on female sport, uh, specifically in netball, has been a great vehicle for you know, um, plenty of females to work their way through in mathematic careers to see that they can do that as well. And some get into it and hate it and go and do other careers, but they did what they were good at. And I found it a tremendous vehicle to help the STEM disciplines um, as, and math sort of specifically uh, in engaging people and thinking, well, this is, they went through a phase where it was called the game behind the game, um, which is kind of true. It's not the game behind the game anymore. It's the game within the game. And we, we do it live now because we have that capacity in technology. And it's kind of an intrinsic part to most high performing teams, which is, is very exciting. Because for, for, for people with fairly abstract and mathematical skills to be involved in something that is kind of not seen that way. It's, as you know, it's kind of seen more as a, a touch, feel, kinesthetic, a movement, emotion type um, you know, engagement. Whereas maths is seen as extremely clinical, black and white, pure, um, clean. But it does certainly require that, that emotion, that communication and that really strong connection between people, which I find find the most um, the most powerful part of, of maths in sport. You're right. I mean, there are such strong parallels, aren't there? Therefore, uh, from that perspective in life itself and sport, uh, and, and that's what I would love to, to try and capture uh, in, in this series for people to, to see the issues that we're facing from all sorts of different perspectives and be able to say, oh, God, I never thought about that before. Uh, and you've been wonderful in this, this context of really introducing me and, and hopefully uh, our listeners to all sorts of, of different ideas about you know, how you look at uh, life. Uh, just going back to netball for a moment, um, I, I could never get on to that game in that most other sports that I know have a flow. There's a sort of flow. And netball there is with the ball, but not the player. This sort of idea that when you've got the ball, you've got to stop and you've got a little zone to stay in. And then funnily enough, I watched my granddaughter last weekend play, play netball. And true, the ball flows really well. But these poor players have to suddenly stop. What's the logic behind that? 
Oh, I'm not going to make up the rules of the game or, or discuss the rules of the game, but it's a bit like life, isn't it? We have to stop sometimes. We can run very, very quickly. And when we get the ball, we have to stop and think. And get rid of it. And then get rid of it and move on to the next one. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it, it's a great game. It's, it's a lot like chess and a lot like AFL in the way that I know that in AFL it's more continuous and flowing, but right. the players have zones, so they, they're restricted to zones. But certainly yeah, stopping when you catch the ball is not great for knees. <laughs> you can talk oh, to any people worry about but the game is incredibly fast, um, and you and the comparisons are made with basketball. And when you watch netball or have been involved with it and compared it to basketball, you think, "Goodness me, basketball is actually really slow compared to netball." Yes, but yeah. it's the ball that's moving quickly. Ball, yes, that's and, right. And the and the micro movements and these players have tremendous acceleration. They're some of the fittest athletes you will find. Is that so, right? Oh, they're incredibly fit. Mm. And some, and they do run, run, and then they get the ball and they stop. Right. <laughs> yeah, cool. But then they go run again. So there's a, it's a lot of accelerations and decelerations. Um, some athletes do well, 200, 300 a game. Is that uh, right? The elite athletes right. can do 300 yeah, accelerations and decelerations at high intensity. So it's, um, it's a fascinating sport to watch it at every level. It may be a grand It reminds me of the, of the, um, punctuated equilibrium theory in, in evolution, yeah. which is precisely that. Things run along for a stop and then stop, and then they <laughs> suddenly jump forward again. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, I maybe think maybe they, we could push the metaphor a bit further to say that even though as individuals we stop and start, the issue keeps moving. The ball, yes, yes. The ball keeps moving. It does. Like when a player catches the ball, everyone else is moving. So they're, they're actually stationary for, a, you know, a maximum of three seconds, but everyone else has to move. So mm. it's quite a... It's, In it's that quite, time, yeah. Yeah, it's quite fascinating to watch um, from a, a spatial perspective. And and that's, again, you know, my maths angle coming out. But um, how you set yourself up within a very small time frame to receive the ball is, is the art of a right. beautiful netball. And... I know at Lightning we used to talk about flow a lot. You use that word flow. We talked about flow and how right. and how when we're playing at our best, it's like the opposition is not there because we are flowing. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Oh, lovely, lovely. That's a wonderful place to stop too. Anthony, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. It's introduced all sorts of new ideas to me. And I would love at some stage to have you back in the future if you would like. I'd love to. Thank you, Richard. And That'd thank you wonderful. for the opportunity. And thank you all for listening, and I look forward to meeting up with you all again in our next episode. Till then, goodbye.